From the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas, just footsteps from the White House, the heart of the nation's capital. This is 14th NG, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. Here's your host, C.R. Wooters. Welcome to 14th and G, podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. Uh, this week, we get a chance to talk to Matt Rhodes, Republican strategist who ran Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign, and Robbie Mook, who ran Secretary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. They've teamed up with some folks at the Belfer Center at Harvard to put out some best practices as it relates to cybersecurity on campaigns. It's an interesting discussion. They they also give us a little bit of their background. So hope you enjoy it. Here's Matt Rhodes and Abby Mook. All right, Matt Rhodes, Robbie Mook. Thanks for joining us at 14th and G. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. Yeah. All right, so let's start with your backgrounds. Matt, how'd you get involved in politics and how'd you find yourself at the Romney campaign? Uh, when I was growing up in upstate New York, Saratoga Springs, I was a young New York Jets fan and uh, followed sports. How's that been going? <laughs> it's been going pretty poorly. <laughs> it's been going pretty poorly ever since 1982 when uh, I started rooting for them. But, you know, I used to watch sports. I used to watch politics, too, and kind of follow politics like I followed sports. But growing up in upstate New York, I didn't have any family that were really involved in politics. I certainly had people that voted and followed it, but I didn't think it was real. I didn't think there was any way you could actually get into it, and I just kind of followed it like I followed sports. And I went to Syracuse University and was a poli-sci major, and over time, as I was at SU, I decided if I was going to actually do something in politics, I should try to get involved. And so I went to the New Hampshire Republican primary in 1996 and supported a guy named Lamar Alexander and spent about two weeks in New Hampshire. And New Hampshire politics to me is kind of like the Super Bowl of politics. It's just an amazing scene, the media, all the candidates running. It's just uh, a lot of fun and I got hooked. And so I went back to SU and decided I needed to get serious and uh, figured out a way to get to DC, which was to get my graduate degree at George Washington University. I got my master's at the Graduate School of Political Management. And during the day, I took a job for hourly wages at the Republican National Committee. And in in life, and especially in politics, timing is everything. Yeah, sometimes, totally. <laughs> sometimes timing has worked for me, and sometimes it hasn't. <laughs> Uh, in the early case, it did. Uh, I I spent time there at the RNC and eventually got absorbed into the uh, Bush-Cheney organization and worked in the White House for, for George W. Bush. And uh, down the road, after working on the Bush-Cheney Real Act and being active in, in, in politics at the RNC and on various campaigns, I met a guy named Mitt Romney who was recruiting a campaign team in 2006 as he was deciding whether or not he was going to run for president and I became his communications director and uh, as a person's communications director you are there at good moments and bad moments <laughs> and uh, we uh, I guess connected over over both 
and uh, eventually that led to me becoming his campaign manager down the road in 2012 when he he ran again yeah so um, Robbie and I worked together on the Kerry campaign, so I know a little bit of your background, but our listeners probably do not. So uh, how'd you get into this racket? <laughs> and we, we weren't paid an hourly wage. Yeah. At PNC, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I'm similar to Matt, I suppose, that I grew up, I was, I was interested in politics. I was passionate about, you know, different policies. I think when I decided to actually get active was probably in high school. And I, I remember in particular, there was a big debate going on about how to fund education and the, the way education was being funded back in Vermont, where I was growing up, was very unequal. And uh, there was an effort to change that, which was successful. But then that's when I saw my first backlash, uh, uh, and which was a good lesson for 2010 and potentially, <laughs> uh, you know, on that side coming up this year. Um, so that that's that's the first time I felt the wave. But I I just I just called up candidates and volunteered for their campaigns. Um, I guess I was that guy who did that. And then uh, when I graduated from high school, I remember packing up. Uh, my parents had an old minivan that they were kind of done with, and packed it up, went up to Burlington, Vermont, and volunteered uh, for the Democratic Party. I got hired about five days in to go canvassing. Um, did that for a summer, and then I just kept doing campaigns uh, during my summers between, uh, you know, uh, between semesters during college, and um, actually went back to Vermont for my first campaign, uh, where I, I think I was the first ever field director. Uh, no, excuse me, it was the first time that we had field staff in Vermont. We had four field staff. It was a very big deal. And in fact, the first field staffer we brought on board is now the uh, majority whip in the Vermont House oh, of Representatives. No way. That's cool. So that's really cool. Yeah. And so, how did you uh, how did you find your way into the big time politics? Yeah. Well, uh, so I was not that Vermont field director is not. Yeah. You know, yeah. No, it was big. It was big. big, big, big it's beginning of big things. Um, so our 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 then governor decided to run for president and uh i was really excited about that i'd actually i'd finished the 2002 election i was working in new york city you know i i knew he was running and i went to go see him speak one night and thought man this is awesome you know i was i was uh very troubled by the the war in iraq he was obviously very outspoken about that and i thought well it's not very often that your governor runs for president I'd known him. I'd, I'd helped out on his campaigns. So I got on board, went to New Hampshire, where uh, unfortunately we lost. <laughs> we had a good we had a good ride there during the summer and the fall. Louder. And they need to hear you in the yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, we were then contacted by the Kerry campaign and showed up at, uh, I guess I was at the Kerry campaign itself first, right near here in downtown D.C. And then we went over to the DNC where you and I met. And yep. The rest is history. Yep. Let me just say on the Bush Cheney campaign, we're all rooting for Robbie and Governor D. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> New Hampshire's a drug, though. So it and is. Go up to New Hampshire. It's, yeah. You know, it's funny. It's like New, drug. New Hampshire. I did. I was gonna. I, I'm a. My next question relates to a story that I have, which is also in New Hampshire. So my my first campaign. So this gets into the work you guys are doing now. But my first campaign was for the Gore campaign. I worked for Gore in New Hampshire in 2000. Where were you in Nashua? Um, Nashua, yeah. yeah. But so I can, I think people think that these national campaigns are these big monstrosities. And what I remember distinctly is, you know, my boss gave me a pager and a and a key to a you know storefront in Nashua, and they said, you know, congratulations, we've turned the phones on and we've turned the heat on. 
and that was it, right? And I walked right. into you literally an empty room, right? Nothing. Get, yeah. yeah, exactly. So how did we get from from you know empty rooms in Nashua to to kind of foreign governments and cybersecurity and all that stuff? Um, is it just technology, or is it it, it something else? Well, <clears throat> one thing on that on that front, I I think a lot of people have this image of campaigns like in the movies, that they're these very sophisticated operations. But even at the presidential level, when you get down to the state level, they're not as sophisticated as they seem. Uh, the one thing they all have in common is lots of pizza boxes. Pizza's <laughs> a, a must-have. Um, but cybersecurity and really good firewalls around email systems are something that is not actually in the cards for most campaigns. And so you have a lot of organizations that get set up at the fly, especially at the state level, uh, where individuals come in and they get hired or volunteer to not only be the IT director, but in some cases, the digital director, the political director, and they have no idea how to set up a secure email system. So it leaves so many of our campaigns and candidates vulnerable to hacking, not just internationally, but domestic. And one of my big concerns and why I've been lucky enough to participate uh, at Harvard at the Belfer Center with Robbie and Eric Rosenbach with our cybersecurity initiative, I worry about that next leader, uh, that next candidate. And you can see folks coming a mile away. In 1998, you knew George W. Bush was going to be running for president down the road. You probably knew that in 1994 when he first ran. And the same is certainly true with Barack Obama these rising stars on the horizon. And I worry that one day one of these candidates is going to be submarined by a hack or something is taken out of context or, God forbid, a, a candidate's family member mm -hmm. uh, is exploited and it changes the course and trajectory of, of history. And so these campaigns are not as sophisticated as they appear to be on Netflix TV shows. <laughs> well, I mean, my experience anyway, at least in the last few years, and you guys are way better at this than I am, is, you know, people show up with their own laptops to begin with. They should they use yep. their own Gmail accounts to start or yeah. hot, the Hotmail accounts back when, when I was doing There's this kind of stuff. There's still Hotmail accounts probably <laughs> out there. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. Some candidates using that's running in 2018. But, well, because it's, you know, you got to get going. You need to yeah. get doing stuff. Time is, is ticking. So, uh, you know, it's interesting that you talked about that because I was going to ask you why you got into this. I mean, it seems to me relatively mm -hmm. obvious why Robbie might be <laughs> interested yeah. in this. Um, so let's talk about the project, Robbie. Why don't you talk about yeah. what you guys are doing at Harvard and, and what the goals are? Yeah, and um, Matt mentioned that Eric Rosenbach, who runs the Belfer Center at Harvard, teamed up with us on this. And I, 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 I personally feel really lucky to be working with Matt and with Eric. Um, I we, we had a common concern and then a common vision. Our common concern was, first of all, that we had a real vulnerability. You know, the internet has changed everything. So you think about the difference between the Gore campaign in 2000 and the Kerry campaign in 2004. Everything changed. You know, we had it brought in more resources to campaigns. It brought in more technology. But just like society, campaigns have moved so much into the digital space, our, our voter files, our donor information, and the way we communicate, right? All that's in no the more pagers space. anymore. No more pagers. <laughs> maybe, maybe somewhere. Um, uh, so we have a huge vulnerability. And then after 2016, nothing was re really being done in a practical way to help people reduce that vulnerability, understand those vulnerabilities, think about risk, think about what's okay to be vulnerable, what's not okay to be vulnerable. And secondly, that 
this issue had become so partisan. So whether you thought this was a problem, whether you wanted to acknowledge it, whether you wanted to do something about it, it was often boiling down to your party. Um, and so we wanted to build a project that was actually partisan. So Matt and I are, I think, both credible Republican and Democrat. Um, so we embrace that, but we are working together uh, and, and speaking with one voice that people uh, do need to address this. In terms of our vision, we want to provide campaigns with tools. And this playbook that we created um, it's online, it's available to anybody in any party, and we set it up so that if you are a campaign manager or you're a volunteer who's helping the campaign get set up, you can understand this thing and you can use it. And you don't need to go hire some big firm to come in and secure your campaign because that's not realistic. People aren't going to have the resources. Yeah, I was going to ask you guys that. So I have corporate clients that spend millions and millions and millions of dollars trying to secure their data. I mean, I got data companies that try to secure their data. Um, how is it even possible? And maybe I'll go to you on this one, Matt. Like, how is it even possible for a campaign to, to secure you know, what they're doing um, as, you know, with the background of the fact that we were just talking about these things kind of get set up on the fly. And, you know, we're talking presidential campaigns, but there's also mayor's races and governor's races and things that get significantly smaller, have less resources. Um, if, you know, Visa can't, I'm making this up, but if Visa has a tough time protecting their stuff, how does, you know, candidate X in primary Y do it? Well, I think it's important that it starts at the top, whether it's the campaign manager or even more importantly, the candidate. Um, when they start running and get involved in a campaign, it's time to shut down the the hotmail, the Yahoo <laughs> the AOL account, accounts. The AOL account, <laughs> if it's not automatically <laughs> shut down. And, and take a few steps to make sure that your accounts are secure and start from there. And if the candidate can do it, then any volunteer can do it. And again, the playbook that we put together, we tried to dumb it down for people like Robbie and I, who are not <laughs> cybersecurity experts. Nope. Uh, but you know, have to set up a secure environment where emails can be shared, documents can be secure, um, and the steps are all in there. And there's, there's simple things that you can do just by wanting to be serious about taking this issue seriously, which I think everyone should. And they're not gonna, campaigns are never gonna have the resources of your very uh, wealthy clients <laughs> in the private <laughs> sector, but there are definitely things that they can do. Right, and how's this being received so far? Good, um, I, first of all, people have been really receptive that there's a bipartisan effort sure. on this front yeah, yeah. that creates a safe space for everybody to engage, including people who aren't partisan. Um, um, I, I will say, I think the probably the number one misconception that I keep running into is people saying my campaign doesn't really matter, or I I, I completely understand how at a presidential level you all had challenges sure. in this space, but I'm just running for Congress. I'm in my primary. I got other things to worry yeah. about, um, and I actually think something that didn't get enough attention in 2016 was how this issue impacted House U.S. House races. Um, you know, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee was hacked as well. Um, research books. So when, you know, when I'm, if, if I'm a candidate running for office, I hire somebody to research me and find out what are all my vulnerabilities? What are the other guys mm -hmm. going to say about me? Those books were stolen and given to local bloggers and reporters. Mm -hmm. um, those candidates didn't win. Now, I'm not going to sit here today and say, well, they would have won if that hadn't sure. happened. Who knows? But 
obviously that's not something you want to have happen. And so I think a place where we have more work to do, all of us, is to say, it, it, to Matt's point, if, if you're in your first race or your fifth race, this matters. And the other thing I would say is these steps aren't that hard. You know, we in the playbook, there's some really simple stuff. It takes like five minutes to set up. You do that, that risk is going way down. And so I, I think we just need to keep beating that drum. Will you guys take a look at what's the next steps here? Are you going to take a look at um, actual securing voting or are you going to stick with the cyberspace? Well, one thing that we've done with the help of a lot of students at the Belfer Center at Harvard is convene tabletop exercises where we bring representatives in uh, from state boards of election, Secretary of State's office in a bipartisan manner, whether it's the Republican Secretary of State of West Virginia or the Democrat Secretary of State of Connecticut. And we do real-time drills uh, where we have an election night and the results are hacked and how the staff of the Secretary of State, and in some cases the Secretary of State themselves, deals with that moment in time, that crisis. And God forbid in this super uber partisan environment that we we live in right now on both sides, uh, if we were to have a Secretary of State's office be hacked on election night and the results somehow were misconstrued, what chaos that would create in the current environment, no matter who won. <laughs> right. Um, well, I mean, we just saw a Virginia delegate race decided by a coin flip or something, right? Yeah, so, I mean, you know. pulled the name out of the hat. Yeah. It's insane. And, and whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, when it comes to cybersecurity, we got to be united because no one should decide who wins our elections in this country except for American voters. No, I think that's right. Okay, so I would not be doing my job as a uh, interviewer, if I didn't ask you guys some political questions, <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, here's a question. It's less uh, political than you might think. This environment's really crazy now, right? Um, kind of super hyperpartisan. We've got a president who direct who, who who is directly in contact with folks. You guys are super campaign managers, but let's say some congressional candidate called you and said, how do I operate in this world? What's the couple of things you'd tell them? And that's, I guess, maybe not as partisan as you might think, but I just wonder, you know, I'm running for Congress uh, and in, you know, Nevada. How do I deal with this? And mm-hmm. it, go ahead, Robbie. No, this is really, really hard. So I, I think... W- uh, what we've learned over the last few political cycles, and I, I actually think this was in the Melman Castagnetti deck <laughs> that went around recently, we've been in these swing elections. So yeah. I think it is likely we're headed for another swing election. And in that case, I think every candidate needs to understand which side of that wave are they on. Um, and uh, also understand politics can be deeply unfair. And so <laughs> I remember when I was at the DCCC in 2010, we had Democrats who'd done everything right. They'd run perfect campaigns. They'd been I'm familiar uh, with these amazing. People. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> you were there, right? And people. they just lose through n- nothing that they did. It's just a wave. That said, um, 
uh, I think every candidate needs to needs to every campaign today needs to be thoughtful about how they're pushing their message out and needs to do everything they can to understand what information voters are getting. I say that because even five years ago, it was pretty easy to understand what was out there. You look at the news, you know, broadcast news, you look at what's on TV, you kind of have a sense of what voters are hearing. On social media now, there's a whole there's a whole um, world of information that's really hard to track. We can't tell what people are seeing on Facebook, for mm-hmm. example. And so I think candidates need to think about how they're dominating or at least driving the, the total information environment. All that said, I think if you're running for House this year or even Senate, so much of this is about the wave and there's only so much you can affect. Yeah, Matt, do you think you can make race is local anymore i mean we used to talk about you know back in the day you want to be if you're in congress you want to be the mayor of whatever your little city is and you want to fix people's problems but aren't you going to be asked about trump and whatever else right you know oprah uh all the time now yeah i think you can and i think republicans are going to have to in 2018 if we're going to hold on to the senate and the house uh if you're running right now you need to and you're a republican you need to make your race a choice and not a referendum the generic ballots at, I think, whatever it is in Bruce Melman's latest uh, PowerPoint, <laughs> probably about 12 plus 12 yeah. for the Dems. Uh, you need to make sure that you make your race a choice. In a statewide race, that sometimes is easier than in a House race, uh, but there's certainly ways to do it. And I tell anybody that is actually thinking about running themselves, and I'm, I always want to encourage, you never want to discourage someone. Timing is important, not just timing from a political environment standpoint, but timing in your life. Uh, but also what's important is actually having a reason for running. Right. <laughs> and right. I think we have right. a lot of candidates on both sides. They forget the first part. Yeah. yeah. They have no reason uh, except for, you know, getting elected. And that, that is not a reason in and of itself. Um, all right. So, Matt, I, uh, as we sit here... There's a open Senate seat in Utah. Oh, yeah? <laughs> um, uh, any chance your guy takes a shot at that? I get asked about, and have been getting asked about Mitt for, for many, many years. And, and since the election, I have consistently thought that, you know, Mitt's 70 years old now. But in Mormon years, he's closer to 50. A lot of good, <laughs> clean living. And I think he has one big thing left in him and you know is it running for the senate he'll have to make that final decision and now that senator orrin hatch has decided that he's going to retire that's a real decision that he has to make i hope that he engages in public service again and i think he has a lot to give um and so you know we have a filing period in january so he'll have to make that ultimate decision sooner rather than later yeah as a as a guy who worked really hard to make sure he wasn't president <laughs> um thanks for that. Yeah, yeah um i think the world could do a little bit better with having reasonable thoughtful republicans in house and senate so i actually personally think you hope oh, yeah. i hope he well, runs if, if, if i mean a republican is likely to win there yeah that's yeah so if it's if that if if it's between mitt and somebody else yeah it, it's funny how these things are all perspective yeah. right um uh two more questions uh last one prediction game 2018 uh, what do you see happening? You know, Rob, you mentioned the wave. Do you think that happens? And, and, and you know, 
we won't hold you to this at all. It yeah. just lives on the internet forever. So, yeah, no, you know. exactly. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. Look, I, if I was here a few months ago, I would have said it. it is tough for Democrats to win back the House because those first 15 or so seats are easier. But then when you're, when you're really trying to get up to that 24, 25, uh, and hopefully more than that, it, it, it starts to get really, really tough. Um, uh, two things have happened. First, the generic ballot. Once, once you're in double digits on that, that's powerful. And so we'll probably start to win seats that are, let's say, 45% Democratic instead of just the ones that are 50 or 51%. And the second thing is these retirements keep adding up. And there are a lot of people in safe districts. And what that does strategically is seats that we would have had to spend, like in Southern California and the Los yeah. Angeles media market, millions of dollars to win. It may be that we're just going to be up five points in August or September going in. We won't have to spend a lot of resources and we can push out into some of those tougher races. So I think it's it's at least a 50-50 shot now of winning the House. Again, I think some people forget how gerrymandered the map is. Um, and now the Senate is in play, which you know, months ago, I would have said, forget about it. Mm -hmm. It's just too hard. So I think Democrats, the problem for Republicans now in the Senate is it was all about offense. I think now they're contemplating defense a lot more. And the North Dakotas and places like that have have become a lot better for us. But but North Dakota, Missouri, uh, these are not Democratic states, so we're still going to have to compete. And and it's certainly we should certainly not be talking about you know oh well it's likely we'll win back the Senate or anything like that. What do you think, Matt? The good thing for Republicans is the election's not today. Yeah, it's very good. So yes, true. If they and they being the outside groups, the campaign committees, the campaigns themselves make the right strategic and tactical decisions, um, there is still hope. And if you look at the Senate map that Ravi pointed to, there are a lot of seats that Democrats have to defend in states that the president won by huge margins, places where he got over 60 percent of the vote. And whatever the environment is, it still is possible to turn races into choices. And if candidates successfully do that on the right and tactically and um, from a, a source standpoint, have the resources uh, to compete. I think that there's a chance that we could definitely still keep the Senate because the map is that bad for Democrats. When it comes to the House, the generic ballot is what it is. But again, Republicans are going to have incredible amounts of resources. Speaker Ryan and his team have done an incredible job of raising money. Now they need to be smart and strategic about where and how they spend that money. And like Robbie said, we have a lot of districts that have been gerrymandered on both sides. And if candidates can run races uh, as Republicans, where in districts it makes sense to embrace the president, then do it. If it makes sense to distance yourself in a respectful way without disenfranchising Trump supporters in your district, do that and, and you can have a chance to potentially hold on to your seat and or pick it up. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. Uh, and that dance with the president, we all have done it before. Do you hug a president? Do you run away from a president? That's a tough dance for anybody to do. But good politicians can sometimes figure that out and figure out how to agree with him on some stuff and not agree with him on some other stuff. So, um, all right. So I asked this question to everybody who comes on the podcast. Um, 
in Washington, if you want job advice or if you want to uh, get to know someone better, you ask them for coffee. I'm sure both of you guys have like eight coffees on your schedule today. Um, if you could have coffee with anybody, to you know, say your afternoon freed up, you could have co- coffee with anybody. Who would it be? I'll go with you first, Robbie. Um, I ha- I have a weird one. Sure, uh, and it's just largely influenced. So I've been I've been spending time this year reading a lot about the uh, war in the Pacific and the Second World War, and what's been interesting to me about it is how first of all when the u.s entered world war ii they said to the pacific fleet you're not the priority right now you guys just kind of you got to hold hold on there we're going to win europe and then we'll help you um and the second thing was uh we were at a real disadvantage and we were we were we were winning strategically but we were losing tactically a lot Mm -hmm. and uh and it became, to some extent, a war of attrition, but I think there were also really important choices that we made well. So my person would be uh, Admiral Nimitz, actually, because... I, no one has gone with that one yeah. so far. <laughs> no, just, like in politics, I've just been trying to reflect a lot. Um, campaigns have become strategically really challenging now. We know we know less than we knew before. There's there's so many unanswered questions. And I, I've just found myself, particularly coming out of 20, 2016, really relating to these folks that had to operate in incredibly difficult conditions. And sometimes people came out looking amazing when they didn't really do a very good job. Some people did a great job. They didn't look so good. Um, but there were definitely people, and I think Nimitz is one of these, who did pull it together and did make a difference. And so I would just love to pick his brain about how we put that together. All right, Matt, what do you got? It's a tough one to top. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I'll have to go back uh, to the Civil War and go with Ulysses S. Grant. I read two U.S. Grant books last year, and I, I, I think his place in history is is not as strong as it should be. I think that that's starting to change in part because history has taken another look at U.S. Grant. Uh, but just his humility, his perseverance, uh, and his character. And no one outside of Abraham Lincoln and George Washington probably have more to do with our country still being the you know country that it is today despite our partisan politics uh than than u.s grant and i think uh history has taken another look at him deservedly so i think it's pretty hilarious that two uh campaign generals have picked uh, military guys yeah, that's <laughs> it's true. Pretty, well, eisenhower is it's pretty one. it's pretty good yeah so i i will say this uh you know uh robbie and matt i really appreciate you coming in here also you know I think what you're doing at Harvard's good stuff. I think it's really going to be useful, and I think Thank it's you. nice in a world where we are hyperpartisan that we can find some stuff that says, "Hey, let's let's figure out these campaigns on their merits and not on some other stuff." <laughs> um, and so, I appreciate the work you're doing at Harvard, and thanks for coming in here. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. I want to thank Matt Rhodes and Abby Mook for coming into 14th and G. That's a fun conversation. Um, and their work at the Belfer Center is obviously incredibly important for our elections going forward. If you're interested in their work, you can click on the description of this podcast, and I've got some links in there. Also, if you're looking for me, my email address is wooters at mc-dc.com. And I look forward to seeing you next time.
right at the corner of business and policy, right here at 14th and G.